Hi, my name is Anita Johnson. Before we play our show, I wanted to ask you to make a donation to Making Contact. Become a part of our group of supporters who believe in the value of independent media. We can only do this work with your support. And right now, your donation will be doubled by Newsmatch. So please just take a minute. Go to our website, radioproject.org, and make a generous donation. Thank you so much. Now here's the show. Making, making, making contact. Making contact. <laughs> we are living in one world dominated by the same system, the capitalist patriarchal military racist system against women and against the poor. And we are living in this world, so we have to revolt together and change the system together. And without working together, we will never succeed. That's author and activist Nawa al-Sadawi, considered by many to be the godmother of feminism in Egypt. She's one of thousands of social justice leaders in communities all over the world who passed away this year. I'm Andrew Stelzer, and this is Making Contact. As we mourn the recent loss of Bell Hooks, Greg Tate, and so many others, we wanted to share words of inspiration from and about some grassroots activists that may not have been very well known outside their particular communities. So we're closing out the year, as we usually do, with the fallen heroes of 2021. We begin with Western Shoshone rancher, Carrie Dan. This earth is our mother, it's not for sale, and it can't be taken by any country. The right was given to us by the Creator, and we're not going to give it to anybody else. We let people, other people other than ourselves, use that land. My name is Mary Gibson. I'm Western Shoshone, and I am also the niece of Carrie Dan. She was a ranching woman. She and her sister Mary were ranching in central Nevada for over 50 years. They took over the ranching business from their father. The land that Nevada now claims, or the United States now claims as public land, Carrie has believed it is Western Shoshone land. This peace and friendship treaty made with the United States never ceded any land in any way. So it has been a fight for Carrie since a young age. I find it quite appalling that a country like United States is legitimizing the theft of the Western Shoshone land. I look at that as spiritual genocide against the Western Shoshone people. In the early 70s, the Dan sisters decided that they were not going to be paying the Bureau of Land Management's required grazing fees because they didn't feel like it was their responsibility. They were ranching, they were grazing their cattle on their own land, and the BLM rounded up their cattle, their livestock, and horses as punishment. Their fines accrued up to millions. I saw the military force of the United States in September when they came out to gather our cattle. Too bad not all you people could see what happened to us out there. But they did take away our livelihood. And it was sad. It still is sad. We had surveillance on us every day by the Bureau of Land Management. 
surveillance this very day. Probably they're out there now or was out there this morning. There's threats of all kinds against us. But I'll tell you one thing. I'm not paying United States raising fees because this is still Western Shoshone land. Carrie happened to live right in the valley where environmental degradation is happening on a very high scale level with gold mining. And Carrie and her sister Mary were heavily involved in the environmental aspects of our territory. Carrie was also involved with some of the protests at the Nevada test site, which happens to be on Western Shoshone ancestral lands as well. They're pumping this virgin water up so that we as human beings can enjoy wearing gold. Ladies and gentlemen, you are killing the earth. The earth is dying because of the way people act. You as consumers, they as producers of gold. And we as indigenous people, we're yelling, Stop that, you're killing our mother. Who's gonna hear us? Stop that, you're killing the earth. You're killing mother of all life, for God's sakes. Can't you wake up and listen to what we're saying to you? Sex workers rights activist, Margot St. James. Men have not had to address the issue of prostitution because women haven't been together enough to stand up and make that demand. But I think that we're doing it today. My name is Johanna Breyer, and I'm the founding executive director of St. James Infirmary, which was also started by Margot St. James. It's the first occupational health and safety clinic in the United States for sex workers. It's all peer-based. It's run for and by sex workers. And Margot was our director emeritus and helped to get this clinic started back in 1999. She was one of my mentors in terms of doing the sex worker organizing efforts in the San Francisco Bay Area. The word whore is still used to keep other women in line, all women, but the punishment of the prostitute is uh, the example set by the system that if you don't, you know, act right, bow down to men, I suppose, you'll get what's coming to you. And uh, a lot of hookers are murdered in this country. I think it's because it's a, a criminalized system here where the victimization is institutionalized and the prostitute becomes a legitimate victim for rape, murder, robbery, any kind of abuse, verbal abuse and physical abuse. She was very clever in terms of making money and did not start out as a sex worker. But because she was arrested under the assumption of sex work, she kind of took that and ran with it. And that led to the formation of Coyote. Coyote stands for Call Off Your Old Tired Ethics. This was really around breaking down those barriers, breaking down those stigmas, classifying sex work as work rather than coming from the realm of prostitution and 
it being something that was stigmatizing. I quit hooking in my late 20s when I realized that the men who I was accommodating and called my friends, my clients, were when they stepped outside my door, by their silence, my enemies. And I decided I could no longer accommodate the hypocrites. In the early days of Coyote, Margot threw the hookers' balls. And those were in San Francisco, and these were huge galas. And local politicians would come. She had started the U.S. Whores Conference. She was sitting down in meetings with Gloria Steinem and Jane Fonda. So, you know, this was the time where a lot of the feminist ideologies were coming out and Margot felt like sex workers should be included in that dialogue. Well, of course, the basic lines of feminism is control of your own body and the ability to set your terms and control your destiny. And I think those three rights are lesbian rights, the right to have no men, abortion rights, the right to have no children or a limited number of children, and uh, prostitutes' rights, which the right to do neither of the four above mentioned, but charge for the activity and uh, profit from it. Margo was able to sit down with legislators, with working class people, sit down with researchers, with uh, academia, and, you know, she didn't make this very complicated. It was all about the rights of sex workers. She wanted civil rights, she wanted pay equity, she didn't want people being arrested, she wanted public health services. All of this was a continual message throughout her life in everything that she did. Rohingya civilian leader Mohib Ullah. Our top focus at this hour, a top Rohingya community leader, Mohibullah, belonging to a refugee camp in Bangladesh's Cox's Bazar, has been shot dead. Mohibullah was 48. He emerged as the main civilian leader of the persecuted Muslim minority community. Nearly 750,000 Rohingyas took refuge in camps in Bangladesh after a military crackdown by the Myanmar army on their villages in Rakhine province in August 2017. My name is Mohammed Nokim. I am living in Coxbazar Rohingya Refugee Camp, Coxbazar, Bangladesh. Mohibullah was one of the leaders of our community of 1.1 million Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh and also the remaining Rohingya in Myanmar also. Imagine you have no identity, no ethnic city, no country, nobody wants you. How would you feel? Ah, this is how we feel today as Rohingya. He started to collect the documents of the atrocity against the Myanmar, which he did, how many people were killed by Myanmar government, how many women were raped, how many hostels were abandoned. First he collected this and then he used his voice to the international community, whoever visiting the camp. His life was threatened many times and he lived in fear that he would be killed. Over one 120,000 Rohingya still live in concentration camp in Myanmar. Others outside live in fear of violence. In 2017, the Myanmar government dropped out 800,000 Rohingya to Bangladesh. They burned our houses, took our land, they gang raped women and girls, and 
they killed thousands of us. In 2018, he organized a campaign, and then on 2019, he also make a big demonstration. It was like 1.1 million in one place. He called the media, and he used the speech just three point. He want to go home to Myanmar with equal rights, and he want justice. For decades, we face systematic genocide in Myanmar. They took our citizenship. Our land, they destroyed our most shops. No travel, no high education, no health care, no jobs. They call us illegal immigrant, Bengali, Muslim terrorists. We are not any of this. We are citizens of Myanmar. We are Rohingya. We are not stateless. Stop calling us that. We have a state; it is Myanmar. So, we want to go home to Myanmar. We, our right, our citizenship, and international security on the ground. Listening to Making Contact. To stay up to date with our shows and get more information about the people profiled in this episode, visit us at radioproject.org. Now, back to more of the fallen heroes of 2021, beginning with the leader of the Hawaiian sovereignty movement, Dr. Hanani K. Trask. We have another call waiting. Go ahead. What's your question, please? You know, you blame it on the white man about on how uh, we came over and take your land. I don't understand when the Japanese are coming over and they're buying it, and that's okay. I, I don't, I don't see see what this is about about the Howleys coming over. You come over to our country and and buy up our land too. You know, it works both ways. I, I don't, I don't see how you can have this rallies and everything against the white man. This is America, you know. I Let me mean, just say something to this call. This is not America. This is Polynesia. Our country was stolen. That's one of your problems. You're ignorant, woefully ignorant. Um, I do. I am very active against Japanese ownership of our land. I have testified repeatedly at various commissions and at, at the legislature in opposition to any foreigner owning Hawaiian land. But you, caller, need to learn about Hawaiian history and about where you are. You think you are in America. You are not in America. You are in a colony that is in Polynesia that was forcibly taken. The bad, bad United States of America took Puerto Rico, it took Alaska, it stole Indian land, it took Hawaii, it took Guam, it took Micronesia, Balao, and you had better learn that history because you are the recipient of an imperialist tradition. My name is Helani Sonora Pale, and I am with Kalahui Hawaii, a native initiative for self-determination. Dr. Hanani K. Trask was a Kanaka Maoli, aka Native Hawaiian professor, whose writings and speeches helped to raise the consciousness of her people. How do we lift the veil from the eyes of our people and show them that they will always, always 
fill up the prisons and the unemployment lines, always occupy the lowest educational and economic levels, always get squeezed out of their lands and put into rat trap apartments, unless they resist, unless they fight back, unless they organize. In other words, unless they become political. In the early 80s, the University of Hawaii was a very white place. They weren't used to Hawaiians speaking up and writing our own history and doing our own research. So then she uh, moved over to the Hawaiian Studies Department. When she took over that department, there was maybe 20 students or majors. By the time she left, she had built a building for Hawaiian Studies. We had our own building. And because of her, we were able to reclaim Hawaiian knowledge and write our own histories and tell our own stories and actually challenge all the lies that have been told for decades about our people. I am telling you what white racism is like on that campus. Right. There are 13 tenured Hawaiians on that campus. They are trying to remove one of the only tenured Hawaiians on that campus. There are 660 That's tenured you. white people. And this age of social media, she's become relevant again, even more so. I mean, everybody knows who she is. And it's like that speech, 1993, January 17th on the palace grounds. I am not American. We are not American. We are not American. We are not American. We are not American. Say it in your heart. Say it when you sleep. We are not American. We will Now that was a shocker. Some Hawaiians were very angry. And it took this long for Hawaiians to go, yeah, we are not American. She said things that needed to be said. The Americans, my people, are our enemies. And you must understand that. They are our enemies. They took our land. They imprisoned our queen. They banned our language. They forcibly made us a colony of the United States. America always says they are democratic. Lies! That is a lie! They have never been democratic with Native people. They have never been democratic with Indians. They have never been democratic with Hawaiians. Because of her, we have so many Kanaka Maoli Native Hawaiian PhDs. Her students have actually started schools. Not just one, but a whole slew of them. They've created programs, they've, and it's all the analysis and the way she taught her students, we've kind of soaked that in and carried it on. Chicana feminist and organizer, Batita Martinez. There's a whole long history of the resistance of Mexicana women and Chicanas against wars, against injustice, going back to Christopher Columbus and going back to Cortez. There have been Native women fighting there in the 1500s, and we have a tradition people don't even know about. My name is Clarissa Rojas. I am a Chicana professor at UC Davis, the University of California, Davis. Betita Martinez was a committed activist, a writer, 
and was foundational to Chicano journalism. She edited and wrote for the leading movement newspaper El Grito del Norte. She was foundational to the civil rights movement where she also worked with the Student Nonviolent Committee, SNCC, and to the Chicano movement, Chicana feminisms, and women of color and third world feminisms where she began challenging patriarchal dominance in culture, politics, and history very early on. There's two SNCers, SNCC people, from my background and the organization. We were the only two Chicanas was the name we called ourselves. Uh, it began to be a movement even. Well, we tried to go around explaining Chicanas to all the people who knew only black and white. Betita actually ended up, during her time in the Chicano movement, learning that uh, she needed to contest the very political uh, leadership styles that had developed uh, the way of doing movement work in the Chicano movement were what she called chingon politics, as she wrote about tough guy politics, in other words, an affliction, she said, that hardly was limited to la raza, but kind of defined the concepts and the styles of leadership through patriarchy, through a culture and politics of domination, which she wanted to move away from. So she challenged sexism in the Chicano movement. I remember in the 60s in the Movimiento, when I was in Nuevo Mexico, and it was a struggle then, you know, at that time, okay, the Chicanas, they, did, they could make the coffee, but then they could type the minutes from the meetings with that. They could type the guy's speeches if they wrote up the speeches. They could sleep with the guys. They better. But anyway, um, but you know, I mean, doing security, planning the strategy of a protest, being the main speakers at a protest, this was not allowed. It didn't happen. Nor did it happen for gay and lesbian people either. Betita's legacy shaped our present reality at the nexus of race, class, and gender. She was really focused on alliance building and on getting us to work together. I actually had the wonderful opportunity of working with her in a book I co-edited, The Color of Violence, the Insight Anthology, where she wrote a chapter that focused on building solidarities among women of color. And she said, let us create a stubborn, imaginative, quote, honest, powerful insurgency. Let us counter the many forces that divide and conquer with instead a strategy of uniting and rebelling. The enemy, it isn't white people. It isn't even just men. It's a whole system which exploits people. And it's a system that is the capitalist system, which is supposed to be triumphant for that and globalizing for that. But what I think it really is, is a system that very much exploits uh, people like everyone in this room. She helped raise up generations of youngsters fumbling in our freshly laid organizing tracks. I raise up un brindis para una vida bien vivida, una lucha bien luchada, y muchos jóvenes bien guiados. You were and will always be a fountain of inspiration, and I hope to do justice by your legacy y seguir con el trabajo de cumplir con una vida justa para todos. Que viva Betita, abajo con la guerra, arriba con la paz y justicia. Que viva Betita, que viva Betita, que viva. Pan-African scholar and historian Renoko Rashidi.
to, no matter how long it takes, give our people a sense of pride in African heritage. Nowadays, I have no shame associated with Africa at all. But when I was a youngster, 14, 15 years old, before I knew better, if you called me an African, those were fighting terms. Now, as I said earlier, if you say I'm not an African, we got to fight on our hands because I've come full circle. My name is Anthony Browder. I am the director of the IKG Cultural Resource Center. Renok Rashidi is important because he did a level of research that very few people in the world have ever done. Renoko traveled to over 134 countries and with his trusty camera was able to document paintings, sculptures, and other references that detailed the presence of African people as scholars, as leaders, as people of note in some of the most obscure places in Europe, Asia, the South Pacific, and throughout the Americas. Because of the work of Renoko Rashidi, the world has to acknowledge the role that African people have played in help shaping the world as it exists today. These hands are important because the Olmec civilization that they come from are the first civilization of the Americas. I'm not saying that Olmec civilization was an African civilization. I'm saying that Africans were a part, an important part of the Olmec world. And you can see more of these images. For example, here's one with braids in the back. And you can compare that with this one right here. But these things are not taught in school. And so many African children grow with a sense of inferiority because they never hear these things about themselves. All they hear about is slavery. They hear about the jungle. And European students grow up with a superiority simply because they are given a one-sided view of history that does not correspond to reality. Renoko was responsible for producing no less than a dozen publications and hundreds of lectures uh, that have been recorded in various cities throughout the world. Let's just show you images of Africa and African people in various parts of the world. We'll call this part unexpected faces and unexpected places. Africa is the mother continent, that's where humanity began, but soon the rest of the world was peopled. He not only found obscure documents in libraries and museums around the world, but he also collected the greatest archives, photographic archives of images of African people from all walks of life for thousands and thousands of years. And this is a black man in China 500 years ago collecting taxes. These are images of the people called the Moors scattered throughout Europe, in Slovenia, your knight in shining armor, a man named Saint Maurice, a black knight. He was a self-taught historian, and he was independent of any academic institution. So he therefore had the capacity to say what he wanted to say without fear of reprisals from the administration, without fear of not getting tenure. Renoko was part of a cadre of scholars who took full advantage of the information that is available to us in order to write and document a new story of African people's contribution to history and culture, and then to spread that message all over the world. I believe that there will come a time, me as a historian, I know I feel this way, when I am going to come face to face with Chancellor Williams and John Henry Clark and Kwame Nkrumah and Marcus Garvey, 
you could call it in the by and by, in the next life, whatever, and they're going to look at me and say, Renoko Rashid, what did you do to advance the cause of African people? And I will say, I did this. And they will say, I had no doubt. Welcome, my brother. Well done. And that gives me some kind of comfort and solace because I feel like I'm doing what I've been called upon to do. You've been listening to the Fallen Heroes of 2021 on Making Contact. If you've enjoyed this episode, please write a review for us on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends and family via Facebook. On Instagram, we're Making Contact Radio Project, and on Twitter, we're Making Underscore Contact. To learn more about us and access other episodes for free, visit radioproject.org. The Making Contact team includes Jessica Partnow, Anita Johnson, Monica Lopez, Salima Hamarani, Sabine Blazin, and I've been your host, Andrew Stelzer. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. We leave you with the voice of a black feminist icon that passed away just weeks ago, Bell Hooks. I'm sure if you go around the world and ask most people, do you want to live in a world full of peace and the possibility of joy for everyone, most people would answer in the affirmative. And yet we are living in a world that is totally full of strife and conflict so that there's a gap between people's longing, their yearning, and how we're actually living in the world.